Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Three, two, one. But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here. Welcome in. We. Episode 4. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 October 24th, 5th, 25th, excuse me, 2021. Hope you all are doing well. Hope everybody had a great weekend. Had a, had a fun, interesting weekend in college football. Don't know that there was any mega headline coming out of Saturday. So instead what we'll do is we'll kind of do a faster-paced whip-around show. I don't think we're going to spend 22 minutes on a topic today or 18 minutes on a topic today. Uh, no SEC coaches that I know of have been fired in the middle of the afternoon like last week with LSU. So this is what I want to talk about. few topics to start. Uh, Ohio State. I think they're emerging as the second best team in college football. Penn State loses. What does it mean for not only Penn State, the playoff, all that stuff, but also James Franklin, could he be losing ground in the race to get one of these elite head coaching jobs, LSU, USC? From there, we will continue on. Do want to talk a little bit about that Alabama game. Alabama into the fourth quarter could not put away Tennessee. I think it's a great sign for Tennessee. I still have worries about Bama, even though they ended up winning by whatever it was, four touchdowns. And finally, we'll wrap on a conversation I think we're probably going to be the only college football, college sports podcast to to have this conversation. Is it time we start talking about the ACC in the college football playoff picture? Pitt five and one, Wake four seven and zero. Oh. I don't know that any of them is elite, but they're coming, and we might have to start talking about them. But with that said, let's get to the topic of the day. Uh, and as I said, kind of a quiet college football Saturday across the entire landscape. On my Fox Sports radio show on Saturday, I called it almost upset Saturday because, yes, Penn State lost, and we'll get to them in a minute. But you look across the landscape, it could have been a crazy cataclysmic day as Oklahoma trailed late against Kansas, easily could have lost that game. Cincinnati struggled to put away Navy, could have lost that game. Alabama, as I just mentioned, into the fourth quarter, one possession against Tennessee. It was almost upset Saturday. Outside of Penn State, there was nothing earth-shaking, though. So what I want to start with 
is a topic and a conversation that I frankly was not expecting to have at all today, right? And sometimes you know coming out of a weekend what the conversation is going to be even before the weekend's played. When Alabama plays Ole Miss and Georgia plays Arkansas and everybody's in the top 15, you know what we'll be talking about first thing come the next episode. If and when Coach O eventually gets fired, if and when Clay Helton eventually get fired, you know what we're going to be talking about. This, though, is a topic that I could have never imagined I'd lead my show with, and it's the Ohio State Buckeyes. And even coming into this weekend where there were no marquee games to really speak of, no top 25 matchups, even on that scale, I basically didn't think I was going to be talking Ohio State at all today. Black game against Indiana. They're about a three-touchdown favorite. They're on the road. It's at night. Eh, Indiana football. Who cares? Everybody knows Indiana's a basketball school. Mike Effin Woodson, my boy. But I was watching that game, and again, throughout the night, I'm kind of thinking, okay, what is going to be the lead topic of my, of my radio show? What is going to be the lead topic of Monday's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast? And I flip on the Ohio State game, and I see him score. And I see him score again. And I see him move the ball. And I see him celebrating. And I'm watching him. And the final score ends up 54-7 at Indiana. On top of that, they were up 37-7 at halftime. And this is the topic of the day. The topic of the day is Ohio State has emerged as the second-best team in college football. You can debate me. You can argue me. Bama fans would say their team. Oklahoma fans would say their team. Cincinnati would say we want some respect. I am just telling you right now, for three or four weeks, we have been waiting to see who would emerge as the next team behind Georgia, and Ohio State is it. They have now won five straight coming out of that loss to Oregon. Four of them have been in truly dominant fashion. And I'm just telling you, we've spent so much oxygen in the Big Ten talking Iowa. We've spent so much oxygen talking Penn State, Michigan, Michigan State. Ohio State is the best team in that conference right now, and I believe they are the second best team in college football. Many of you probably sitting back saying, Torres, wasn't it you just like three weeks ago that was like, Ohio State stinks? Yes, I did. I did say after the Oregon game that I believed that they had real troubles, but what I would also do is give myself a little bit of credit for this. I remember coming out of that weekend, it would have been week two of the college football season, so we're talking now six weeks ago. I remember it was a bad weekend for Oklahoma, it was a bad weekend for Clemson, and it was a bad weekend for Ohio State. And I remember coming on this show and saying this very simply. I said all three of those teams are struggling, but I do believe if one of them can turn a corner, it is Ohio State. And it is Ohio State because while the defense was struggling, while C.J. Stroud, their quarterback, was still getting comfortable, the one thing I said was this. They have by far the best skill position talent in college football. Their skill position talent is so good that Alabama's best wide receiver, Jamison Williams, transferred to Alabama because he could not get on the field at Ohio State. And so I said, yes, Ohio State is struggling. But if they can clean up the defense, if they can clean, if they can get not really more consistent quarterback play from C.J. Stroud, but just let him get more comfortable, this is going to be a dangerous team down the stretch. Here we are, we're now heading towards November, one week from today as I record here, it will be November, and so I bring it up because I am just telling you that Ohio State is emerging. The question now, of course, after five straight wins, four of them in dominant fashion, how did it happen? Well, it's pretty very, it's very simple, and we do have to give credit to Ryan Day, okay? Because coming out of that Oregon game, Ryan Day had to make some real tough decisions, especially on the defensive side of the football, and especially with his coaching staff. If you remember that Oregon game, 
Ohio State gave up 500 yards of total offense. Oregon basically kept scoring the same, you know, they kept scoring on the same play over and over and over again. And it was a masterclass from Oregon offensive coordinator Joe Moorhead against the Ohio State defensive staff. And we all came out of that game. It wasn't just me. It was anybody who cares about college football saying, if Ohio State doesn't clean up the defense, they are not competing at the highest level. And Ohio State, of course, like Alabama, like Georgia, like a few other schools, it is national championship or bust. And at the very least, college football playoff or bust at Ohio State. And so I give Ryan Day credit for this. Coming out of that Oregon game, we all knew changes needed to be made on the defensive side of the ball. Ryan Day did it, and 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 it's it's it, you know I give him so much credit because we have all these coaches you know they've been around forever they've had success they don't want to change let alone especially in the middle of the season. Dabo Sweeney, Clemson, lost again on Saturday, was again asked about his offensive play caller Tony Elliott, and Dabo Sweeney said, "Look." Everyone is to blame, including myself, but we aren't making changes here at Clemson. We are going to figure this out with the guys that we got, and we're going to be good going forward. Ryan Day didn't do that. He said, we need to make changes now if we, reach, if we want to reach our full potential as a team that is capable of winning the national championship. So what does he do? His defensive coordinator, Kerry Coombs, to his, you know, Ryan Day did not fire him. So I thought this was a really kind of cool move. Now, granted, Ohio State can make this move because they have so much money. They have so many, you know, so much depth with analysts and things like that. But he actually took his defensive coordinator, Kerry Coombs, out of the position of play calling on the defensive side of the football gave play calling responsibilities on game day to a younger coach, maybe a little bit more of a dynamic coach. And this guy, Kerry Combs, has ultimately become basically the overseer of the defense. He's what they call a walk-around coach where he is not coaching an individual position group. He's not calling plays. He is just overseeing everything and giving pointers. And what has happened is, since that move was made, Ohio State's defense is significantly improved. As I said, they gave up 35 points and over 500 yards of total offense against Oregon. Next week, they play Tulsa. After that, here's what they've done in the last four games. They gave up seven points against Akron. They gave up 13 points against Rutgers, 17 points against Maryland, which was a top 20 offense coming into that game, and seven points against Indiana on Saturday in a game where Indiana scored early in the game and then basically could not move the ball from that point going forward. Uh, Indiana finishing the game with 128 yards of total offense. So the defense has clearly evolved. The defense has clearly gotten better, and they are playing their best football going into their toughest stretch of the season, which we will talk about in a minute. The other big things that have happened, a couple things. One, I do think C.J. Stroud, the quarterback, has gotten more comfortable. And the cool thing about doing this show on top of my Fox Sports radio show is that because of the Fox Sports radio show, I get unique opportunities that I might not get otherwise. One of them being on Saturday night after that Indiana game, you know who we had on Fox Sports Radio as a guest? We had C.J. Stroud, the Ohio State quarterback. And he talked a lot about early in the season. He came in. He was a little bit banged up. Uh, you know, he was just struggling with, not struggling, but, but taking his time, gaining his confidence. And so I bring all that up to say it is very clear that, one, he wasn't 100% healthy early in the season. He sat out the Akron game, actually, which was the week four game for Ohio State. And since then, he got healthy, and he told me, this isn't me speculating, he said it on Fox Sports Radio, that 
he has been a completely different quarterback since then, and the offense would reflect it. Last three games, this is what the offense has done. 52 points against Rutgers, 66 against Maryland, 54 against Indiana, which actually came in with a very respectable defense. And so now you have both sides of the football peaking at the same time. As I said, that defense gave up 35 points to Oregon, 45 points in their last four games, including three Big Ten opponents. The offense evolving under C.J. Stroud. You want some stats on C.J. Stroud? I tweeted it out. But the last three games since he has come back from injury, 14 touchdowns, zero interceptions, over 1,000 yards, a, a, yards passing, 73% completion percentage. He is now, by the way, third, I believe, in the Heisman Trophy odds. We have the updated Heisman Trophy odds at AaronTorresOnline.com. But I just bring it up to say, this kid is playing out of his mind. Travion Henderson, a running back freshman. He was the best running back in high school football last year, has emerged. He is on his way uh, to a 1,000-yard season. I would guess he already has 11 touchdowns in seven games played. And so I am just telling you, all the pieces are starting to click. And then on top of the fact, the defense is playing better. The quarterback is healthy and more comfortable. Oh, by the way, you have this freshman running back emerging as a star. All those skill position guys are balling out, and C.J. Stroud is getting comfortable in getting them the ball. thing that stood out looking at the box score the other night from the Indiana game is they had six different wide receivers that had at least two catches. Chris Olave, who might be the first wide receiver off the board in the next NFL draft, only had two catches. Now one of them went for uh, a one of them went for a touchdown. So it's not as though he had a quote unquote bad game. But there is so much talent with that Ohio State receivers room that I am just telling you, I'm just telling you, like like they are starting to emerge and all of the pieces are starting to come together. I would even take it a step further. You guys know I love Georgia. Picked them to win the national championship. My dogs. Ruh, 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 ruh. But what I would tell you, I think when you start talking about the most complete team, if I had a ranking, Georgia's number one, but also in terms of a team that I believe, forget, you know, uh, one, two, three, four, five, one, Ohio State is ascending. I said it on last Saturday's show. I said Georgia's the best team in the country, but they are pretty close to what a finished product will look like. I'm not sure Ohio State is even close. Oklahoma, if they can figure out the defense with the way Caleb Williams is playing, I don't know that they're close to reaching their potential. But I bring all of this up to just say, when it comes to Ohio State, I think you can argue right now they're the most complete team in college football. Georgia's incredible. That defense is incredible. But I keep saying it. Nobody has made them beat them in the pass game. Stetson Bennett is their quarterback. Stetson Bennett got benched last year because he couldn't beat anybody in the passing game. Not the teams that mattered anyway. Not Alabama, not Florida last season. And so I look at this Ohio State team, and I'm just telling you, you can debate me, you can argue me, you can say they haven't played anybody, and I will readily admit they are about to hit the tough part of the schedule. Probably the three worst teams in the Big Ten that they'll play all year, they have already played, and the five toughest games on their schedule in Big Ten play are still ahead. They play Penn State this weekend. They play at Nebraska next week. The week after that, Nebraska is at the very least a frisky team that can move the ball and score points. Purdue, which was actually ranked as of this week, they are now lo no longer ranked after losing to Wisconsin, then Michigan, then Michigan State. So still five games left, four against teams that were ranked in the top 25 this past weekend, as well as a trip to Nebraska. Michigan State surging, Michigan playing really well. But I'm just telling you, you can debate, you can argue, you can discuss, you can whatever. I'm telling you right now, 
Ohio State is the second best team in college football, and they are like a rocket ship taking off. All right, great first segment, fired up, love today's show, love that we're going to be able to hit on some stuff that we normally wouldn't get to hit on on a busy Saturday. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back. Penn State loses to Illinois. What does it mean for the Big Ten picture? What does it mean, by the way, for James Franklin now as he pursues potentially the USC job? What does it mean for him as he potentially pursues the LSU job? We will discuss that all coming up. All right, everybody, I am back. Good to be back, good to be back. I do want to switch gears, but I do want to stay in the Big Ten, and I do want to talk about the team that Ohio State actually is playing this coming weekend in Week 9, the Penn State and Nittany Lions. Because to lead the show, I said this was almost upset Saturday in college football. In other words, there was a lot of really close calls for a lot of good teams, but the Cincinnati's, the the Oklahoma survived, Alabama pulled away late from Tennessee, but there was one exception to almost upset Saturday. Penn State as a heavy, heavy, heavy favorite against Brett Bielema's Illinois fight in Illini. Oh, they went down 20-18 final score in nine overtimes. Yes, nine overtimes. I am going to get to this awful rule in a minute, but one, shout out to Brett Bielema because Illinois, uh, he criticized his O-line publicly earlier in the week. Everybody on social media got all upset with it. I would never play for this guy. Naturally, of course, his O-line came out and played the best game of their lives. And uh, once again, people on social media have no idea what they're talking about. But two, beyond that, what I would also say is this. We're going to talk about the playoff ramifications. We're going to talk about that overtime rule. I also believe that it sets up something very interesting, though. I think this loss makes it that much more likely that James Franklin tries to get out of Penn State this offseason. But what I would also say is, at the same time, I do start to wonder, if he doesn't start winning, turning things around at 5-2 and two with the toughest games on his schedule ahead, did he just coach himself out of USC or the LSU job? So let's talk about it. Let's break it down. And before we get into it, look, I got to go ahead and just crush this new overtime rule. And for people who do not know, college football this offseason elected to put in a new overtime rule, and the reason was this. About three years ago, LSU and Texas A&M played an all-time classic game that went seven overtimes. It was crazy. It was iconic. The final score was 74-72, to 72, and when it was all done, all of us as college football fans were like, that's awesome. Everybody that runs college football, though, was like, that's way too many hits on the body. We can never have that happen again. My defense would be, one, it was an all-time game. I don't know why you change a rule after you have an incredible game. But then on top of that, nothing like it has happened since. Nothing really like it happened before that. And so this idea that we're just out here playing seven overtime games left and right and people are going to be falling down in the streets uh, seemed ridiculous. But college football changed their overtime rule, and Saturday was really the first time that we got a chance to see it in person, and it's terrible. The idea of the overtime rule is essentially this. First two overtimes are standard. You get the ball in the 20, you drive in. If you score, the other team gets the ball. If they score and tie it up, you go to the next overtime. If you win, then you win in the the first overtime, whatever. After the second overtime, though, to limit hits to the body, This is what we now do in college football. And I'm not making this up. This actually happened Saturday, Illinois, Penn State. You line up for two-point conversions, and each team just goes back and forth on two-point conversions until the game is over. 
it's terrible. It's awful. I will say that Penn State and Illinois were probably not the best teams for us to get the first look at this overtime rule, but it was terrible because essentially what would happen is this. Illinois lines up for a two-point conversion. They get it. They don't get it. Whatever. Then the game stops. Then everybody runs to the other end of the field, lines up for another two-point conversion. Then after that round, you stop, you ask the coaches, okay, well, coach, which side of the field do you want to stand on? Which side of the field do you want to go into? All that stuff. It's just a start, stop, start, stop, start, stop, start, stop. And again, I understand that Penn State and Illinois were not the best teams to implement this rule for the first time, but it was painful. It was terrible. It was supposed to create more drama, but in reality, it actually created much less drama because all the energy kept getting sucked out of the stadium. Penn State scores a two-point conversion. Everyone's fired up. Now we walk over to the other end of the field. We talk to Brett Bielema. We do this. It, it was awful. It was terrible, and I do think college football has to reconsider this overtime rule. But as much as I hate the new overtime rules, let's switch gears, and let's just talk about Penn State because to me, this game changes everything if you are Penn State. It changes the short term of this season. It changes maybe James Franklin's future. It changes the college football playoff picture. It changes everything, so let's break it down. And as we do, let me start by saying this. I do feel bad for Penn State fans. I mean, it was legitimately three weeks ago that Penn State fans, all of us, myself included, I'm not just talking about Penn State fans, thought they were headed to the college football playoff. That was, of course, uh, they were 5-0, and they beat Auburn, they beat Wisconsin, they're playing well, going into this Iowa game, and we all know what happened from there. They're up 17-3 to at Iowa, doing everything right, they're cruising, quarterback Sean Clifford gets hurt. From there, they're fighting, they're fighting, they're fighting, they're scrapping, they're scrapping, they're scrapping, they're holding on, they're holding on, they're holding on, and eventually Iowa overtakes the lead with about five minutes to go, they end up winning that game. Still... Even after that loss, you think, okay, let's just get to our bye week. Let's get healthy. Let's get Sean Clifford, our starting quarterback, healthy. Maybe we'll play him a quarter or two against Illinois, but we'll be up so big we can pull him out and start prepping for Ohio State. Instead, you lose this game, and now the entire trajectory of the season changes. You're 5-2. and two. You're not going to the college football playoff. You have two conference losses where Michigan, Michigan State, and Ohio State have zero losses, so you're probably not going to the Big Ten championship game. And here's the scary part. You still have the toughest part of your schedule ahead. Now, Penn State got no favors from the Big Ten office getting Wisconsin and Iowa this year in the cross-division games, but you still have the toughest part of your schedule ahead with Ohio State this weekend where you're a 16.5-point underdog, Michigan down the road, and then at Michigan State to close the regular season. And so as I look at the present and future of Penn State football, I'm not saying you have nothing to play for, but you don't have nearly as much as you did just a few weeks ago. And I also think that this loss changes the dynamic with James Franklin. I've said it all along. I thought that the only way he would stay at Penn State is two things. One, if he just doesn't get offered the USC or LSU job, but then two, if Penn State makes the college football playoff, you can't leave, right? You can't leave when you're preparing for the biggest game uh, in 20 years in Penn State football. You can't leave when you make the playoff. You can't argue that I can do something at USC or LSU that I can't do at Penn State if you're in the college football playoff. But with this loss, what it says to me now is two things. One, I think it makes it that much more likely that James Franklin fights to get the Penn State or, L or the, the LSU or USC job. I think it makes it that much more likely that he wants to leave town, he wants to start over somewhere else. On the flip side, though, what I would also say is this. 
I think it, these these losses are starting to pile up, and if he doesn't start winning quickly, all of a sudden, I don't know if USC or LSU is going to be able to justify hiring him. So let's talk about it. Let's break it down, because when you look at this situation with James Franklin at Penn State, I've been a James Franklin defender. I don't think he, because he hasn't had that super signature season, the playoff run, the 12-1 regular season, I don't think he ever gets the credit he deserves. He's been really, really, really good over essentially the totality of his time at Penn State. But I also think if you're looking at it from a 30,000-foot view, you can say this. This is now year eight for Penn State. And really, his best year was his third year back in 2016, which was a million years ago. That was the year, if you remember, they beat Ohio State. They win the Big Ten regular season title, they or the Big Ten East regular season title. They win the Big Ten championship game. They finish the, the Big Ten championship game 11-2 and two at that point. And the big debate that year was, do you take Ohio State, which was 11-1, and one, or do you take Penn State, which had the head-to-head win and actually won the Big Ten? The committee chooses Ohio State. I thought it was idiotic. I thought Penn State deserved to be in. Uh, but the committee ultimately takes Ohio State. And I said even at the time, I said, I think James Franklin made a tactical mistake there because if you go back and you remember and you look at all the video and everything, James Franklin didn't really fight to get into the college football playoff. I think he was kind of happy year three, you win the Big Ten, you're on the rise, we're going to have other shots. And what ended up happening is that was kind of the peak under James Franklin. Not saying he's been bad since, but you go 11-3 and three in 2016, that was the year they won the Big Ten, didn't get into the playoff. Uh, the following year they go 11-2. and two. The following year they go 9-4. and four. 2019, which was three seasons ago, obviously you go 11 and two. Last year was COVID, and then this year they're now five and two. So if you're looking at James Franklin as, if you're looking for at James Franklin why he might want to leave, it's pretty simple. This program has probably gone as far as I can get it. I had three straight 11 win seasons plus a Big Ten championship game from 2016 to 2019. With the way this conference is rolling, am I ever going to get it rolling quite this high again? This was supposed to be the year in year eight. This was supposed to be the year we're peaking. Ohio State was struggling early in the year. Now all of a sudden, six weeks later, let's look at it. Ohio State's awesome again. I just talked about it. Penn State is struggling. And this would be the scary part if I was James Franklin and I was trying to justify leaving Penn State. To, beat, to win the Big Ten, to go to the playoff, to compete for national championships, which, which is what James Franklin wants to do, you got to get through Ohio State. And the scary part is the gap between Ohio State and Penn State is getting bigger. The gap between those two schools is not getting smaller. Penn State is not getting closer to Ohio State. They're getting further away. Just look at the results in this game. This kind of blew me away. So 2016, as I said, they beat Ohio State, should have gone to the college football playoff. 2017, they lose to Ohio State by one point. 2018, they lose to Ohio State by one point. 2019, they lose by nine. Last year, in the COVID year, no fans in the stands, they lose by 13. Now they're a 16-point underdog going into Ohio State this weekend. So if you're James Franklin and you're trying to justify leaving Penn State, he he wouldn't say this publicly, but behind the scenes, he's got to be thinking, dude, I had these guys on the ropes three years in a row. Now they keep getting better, and I can't quite keep up with them. On top of that, I would also say this. Only 3-3 three and three in his last six against Michigan State, and that was during a, a low time in Michigan State football at a time that they were rebuilding and they brought in a new head coach. Michigan State's on the rise. Michigan, 3-3 three and three against Michigan in the last six games, but uh, last year was one of those wins. I don't even know if it counts because of COVID. It was so weird. And so this Big Ten East isn't getting any easier. 
Ohio State continues to be a shooting star. Michigan State is certainly on the rise if Mel Tucker stays. Michigan, credit to Jim Harbaugh. We can criticize him for a lot. Revamp the staff. The team has not looked this good, I don't think, since 2016, uh, the, or 2015, excuse me, his second year when they just missed the playoff loss to Ohio State. With that said, though, I can see why James Franklin is ready to move on from Penn State, why he's ready to look for another opportunity, why he's probably sitting here on a Sunday or a Monday and saying, this was supposed to be it. I cannot believe, we're in the same spot. We're not Ohio State. We might not even be Michigan or Michigan State this year. I got to get the heck out of here. What I would also say, though, is this. Over the last couple days, has it become that much harder for USC or LSU to hire James Franklin as your head coach? Three, four weeks ago, they're in the college football playoff conversation. They're ranked in the top five. It's Penn State. It's probably one of the 10 best jobs in college football. USC and LSU are two of the five best jobs in college football. And you are throwing a parade if you hire James Franklin under the circumstances that you could have potentially got him. At the time, you're hoping they don't make the playoff, but they finish 10-2, and two, and you can sell. This guy won 10 games in the Big Ten and still wanted to come here. But now let's look at it. Let's look at it because Penn State is 5-2. and two. They just lost to Illa freaking Noy. And on top of that, let's also not forget this, what I just said a minute ago. Three toughest games on their schedule are still ahead. Ohio State this weekend in Columbus. Michigan three weeks from now. And finally, Michigan State in East Lansing to end the season. If Penn State finishes 7-5, and five, can USC really justify hiring James Franklin? If Penn State finishes 7-5, and five, there is no way LSU can uh, ju justify hiring James Franklin. And so that's going to be the interesting push-pull. In terms of each individual job, I'll just tell you this. I live in Los Angeles. You can criticize USC for a lot of things. By the way, they were terrible. They were terrible against Notre Dame on Saturday night. Uh, USC is a complete dumpster fire of a program. But it is still a top five program, and it is still a program, I can tell you, holds itself in very high regard. I live here. I know the program. I don't claim to be some sort of insider, but I know how the program operates. I know how the program thinks. There's an institutional arrogance there, and they are not going to want to hire a coach that is coming off a 7-5 and five season, even if in his past he has won a Big Ten championship and has multiple 11-win seasons. You can argue with me. You can debate me on it. I live in L.A. That will not fly with USC fans. And you have to remember with USC specifically, this isn't LSU, Alabama, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Kentucky. They're not going to show up to watch a bad football team. And so your hire not only has to be a good football coach, he has to be splashy enough to sell tickets. And I don't know that James Franklin coming off a 7-5 and five year pushes USC fans to the ticket window and says, I got to sign up for tickets now because in three years they are not going to be available. So USC's kind of like, I, I think USC's in kind of a weird spot right now. I'll take it a step further. I think it's that much harder for LSU. One, LSU, and I've said it a trillion times, they are going to target the biggest names in football for their job, okay? Uh, you know, there was even a report this weekend that Mike Tomlin, the Pittsburgh Steelers head coach, might be interested in the LSU job. And so you talk about the biggest names in college football, in professional football. Um, you know, I heard some other, I've heard people say this over the last week. There are people in football, in the NFL, that are saying LSU isn't just one of the best jobs in college football. It is one of the best jobs in football, period. And they are going to attract a lot of big names. And so you think they're going to take a guy that's seven and five in the Big Ten? I think that's going to be a tough sell. And I'll take it a step further. LSU is a really tricky spot for this reason. 
they are coming off the Coach O era where Coach O, when he got that job, basically sold his bosses on this idea. He basically said to him, look, I know I'm not uh, Nick Saban. I know I'm not an offensive savant. I am going to be what they call in football a CEO head coach. I am going to hire great coordinators. I am going to be a motivator. I am going to be a recruiter. I am going to be elite at all that stuff, and I'm going to leave the scheme on offense and the scheme on defense to really good coordinators. In 2019, it worked out really well. Joe Brady was there on offense. Dave Aranda was there on defense. You win a national championship. Those hires did not work out over the last couple over the last couple years. That is why Coach O is currently out of a job, and LSU is available. Why do I bring that up with James Franklin? It is because part of the reason that the names you're hearing with LSU are who they are is because LSU fans seemingly want a guy who is really elite on one side of the ball, right? That's why you hear about Lane Kiffin. That's why you hear about Jimbo Fisher. LSU fans want that guy that is going to put up points, be sexy, play a fun brand of football, and really be great at one particular thing. I would mention there's also even been rumors that LSU is at least going to call Lincoln Riley and make Lincoln Riley say no. But I bring all this up because think about James Franklin. And this is no disrespect. He's obviously a good coach. 11 wins again in 16, 17, and 19. Nine wins in 2018. That's a lot of wins over a four-year period. But when you think James Franklin, what do you think? You don't think elite play caller. You don't think elite defensive mind. You kind of think CEO. You kind of think elite recruiter, elite motivator. Uh, he hasn't been the same since Joe Moorhead left. The offense hasn't been the same since Joe Moorhead left. Gone, uh, now on their third offensive coordinator in three years. And so doesn't that sound a lot like Coach O? Are you really going to be able to sell James Franklin as this CEO face of the program? We're going to hire great coordinators. Well, that's just why you fired Coach O. So when I look at this situation, I'm just telling you, it is absolutely fascinating. And I'm not saying it can't happen. First of all, Penn State can turn the corner, maybe finish 9-3. and three. You pull an upset over Ohio State this weekend, which I don't think is going to happen after what you just heard from me a minute ago. Uh, the whole narrative flips. But at the same time, what I would also say is you finish 7-5, and five, even 8-4. and four, It's going to be tough for USC, fan, USC to justify hiring this guy. It's going to be tough for LSU to justify hiring this guy. If I had to put a percentage on it, I would still like USC more than LSU. I think one, James Franklin wants USC more than LSU. But on top of that, uh, I just don't know that either of those schools can hire James Franklin unless he starts turning things around. So fascinating deal. But had you asked me even a week ago, I would have said James Franklin will be the next head coach at USC, if not their LSU. Now, I'm not so sure. All right, this is what I want to do. I want to take a quick break. I want to come back. I want to wrap the show. A lot to talk about still. Alabama, nice win against Tennessee, but are there starting to be a little cracks in the armor? Oklahoma. How about the ACC? Is it time to actually start talking about the ACC as a potential college football playoff candidate? We will talk about that coming up. All right, everybody, final time. I am back today. Good to be back, good to be back, and I do want to kind of wrap and, and hit on a few topics here to close out this episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, and I do want to start in a place that you probably might be a little bit surprised that I'm, a, a game that frankly I'm, I'm, I'm even discussing. That is Alabama, Tennessee, third Saturday in October, every single year these two teams play, and Alabama wins 52-24. to and at first glance, I think anybody who kind of had the game on in the background or wasn't really paying attention, they might sit there and say, what's there to talk about? Alabama wins by 28. 
They were a 25-point favorite. They dominated. They're going into their bye. We feel great about them. They're going to compete for a national championship, probably beat Georgia in the SEC championship game, and it's going to be Alabama, Alabama, Alabama. What I would tell you is I didn't see the same thing. And what I would tell you is, I told you two weeks ago, after the Texas A&M game, I am worried. I am worried about this Alabama team. I think they have fundamental flaws. Not to say that they're not a great team. Not to say that Nick Saban isn't the iconic all-time coach, maybe the best coach that any of us have ever seen. And not to say that they're not one of the four, five, six best teams in college football this year. But at the same time, Alabama is a championship or bust type program. And as I look at this team right now with the resume that they have and what I see in results on the field, this does not look like a team to me that is going to win a national championship. And so let me explain, because I think most of you would sit there and say, uh, Torres, you okay there? What, what, what are you drinking? What are you smoking? What are you, what are you doing? Because they won 52 to 24 against Tennessee. They doubled up Tennessee. They have the number two scoring offense in college football. And while we would love to be undefeated if we're Alabama, you're 7-1 and one going into your bye. You feel great. You have a manageable home stretch that includes games against LSU, Arkansas, New Mexico State, and at Auburn. And so if you're an Alabama fan, you're sitting there saying, we're 7-1. and one. We're going to be a comfortable favorite in all our games. Yeah, we got to face Georgia, but we own Georgia, and we're in pretty good shape. And to that, I would say I don't even necessarily disagree with that. But what I would also say is that I continue to see things from this team that worry me, and when the expectation is title or bust, this does feel like a little bit of a bust to me. First of all, let's go back and watch that game with a critical eye against Tennessee. Because I know we got a lot of Tennessee fans that listen. I know we got a lot of Bama fans that listen to this show. Well, what did you see? I saw a Tennessee team that competed their butts off in that game. The final score was 52-24, to but if you watch that game, you know what happened. Tennessee was up 14-7 after the first quarter. Tennessee was down by one touchdown going into the fourth quarter, and Tennessee was down 31-24, to one touchdown with about 13 minutes to go before a Tennessee team that is down a million players to injury, to transfer. This program was gutted when Jeremy Pruitt left the program. You look at that Tennessee team, they were down one touchdown late in the, or, or early in the fourth quarter. Alabama eventually pulls away from a team that just doesn't have the depth, the bodies, the whatever. On the one hand, credit to Tennessee for competing. On the other hand, credit to Alabama for pulling away. But at the same time, it doesn't change the fact that it was a one-possession game against a young, inexperienced Tennessee team at home under a first-year head coach in Josh Heupel. And so when I take what happened Saturday night at, uh, at Bryant-Denny Stadium, and when I put it in with the totality of this Alabama season, I am telling you, this team has holes. This team has problems. I do not believe this is a championship team. First of all, let's go back and look at Alabama's schedule with a critical eye. I made this argument after the Texas A&M game. I think you can legitimately say that the best half of football that Alabama has played all year was against Miami in the opening half of the opening game of the season with nine months to prepare. Not saying they haven't had moments that they looked great at other times. Not saying they haven't had moments where they look like the best team in the country at other times. But what I am saying is there's a reason that Nick Saban has had two or three blow-ups at the media this year, and it's because he knows that his team has to put it into high gear. In terms of the resume, let's do a real deep dive. Because I think when we do, I think you're going to see something surprising in terms of this Alabama resume, okay? So first of all, take out the out-of-conference play. You beat Mercer, you beat Southern Miss. First SEC game at Florida. Final score, 31-29. Florida, Alabama needs a goal line stand against to beat. More importantly in that game, another game. You start fast. You're up 21-3 to after the first quarter. 
Florida outscores you 26 to 10, and I don't think there's even a debate. Florida was the better team over the final three quarters of that game, and it's worth noting, since then, Florida hasn't been all that good. So uh, at the time, we thought, oh, maybe Florida's just really, really, really good. No, Florida stinks, but Alabama did not play to the level of expectations for the final three quarters of the game. Okay, you move past that. Next SEC game, you play Ole Miss. To Alabama's credit, uh, a lot of people, I think, thought Ole Miss could win that game. Alabama wins 42-21, to but I've said it for two or three weeks now, and I truly believe it. Lane Kiffin gave away a bunch of points in that game. And so was Alabama that awesome, or did Lane Kiffin go for it uh, time and time and time and time and time and time again in his own territory, short field, Alabama was basically gifted 21 points, and we really have no idea how that game could have or would have gone down because Lane Kiffin kept giving Alabama the ball uh, deep in their own, deep in uh, Ole Miss territory. And so you have that game. You have the Florida game. Then you have the Texas A&M loss, which we've talked about at length. Then you have the Mississippi State game where, to Alabama's credit, they were awesome, okay? That's no disrespect. That's no, they were awesome in that game. And then you have the Tennessee game again against a young team, first-year head coach, beat up, transfer portal, wore this team down. It's a one-possession game, middle of the fourth quarter. And so you look at the totality of Alabama's season. Georgia has been awesome every week. Ohio State has been awesome the last three or four games. Oklahoma at least had one really good game against TCU. What have we seen from Alabama? Let's take just SEC play. We've seen one great game against Mississippi State, one great quarter against Florida, one great quarter against Tennessee last night. I don't even know what the Ole Miss game was. Was it great? Was there any moment where they were in I, I see a team that has played really well for one game, and that's really it. And so when I look at this Alabama team and how they start to match up, I do think this is a team that has fundamental problems. Three of them, as a matter of fact, come to mind. First of all, the offensive line isn't good enough, okay? So let us let me even backtrack. After the Texas A&M game, I talked a lot about what this team has lost over the last two years. Two first-round quarterbacks, two and Mac Jones, four first-round wide receivers, which we'll get into in a minute. Najee Harris, two first-round NFL offensive linemen. Well, this year... I think there are three issues that are really plaguing this team, and the first one is the offensive line. For people who do not know, Doug Marone was brought in as the head, as the offensive line coach uh, over the course of this offseason for Alabama. That offensive line is not blocking, and Doug Marone, I don't know if he thought, oh, I'm coming down from the NFL to college, I'm going to be a rock star, and I'm going to get out of here in one year and get me another head coaching job. That guy is not earning his paycheck right now, and that's just not my opinion. The stats back it up. First of all, Alabama 55th ranked total offense, or 55th ranked rushing offense, excuse me. Brian Robinson is awesome running right at the offensive line, right at the, 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 the defense, but in terms of plays on the outside, in terms of all sorts of stuff on the perimeter, it's just not there. On top of that, Bryce Young has been sacked 18 times this year. That is the 10th worst result in the SEC, 80th most sacks allowed in college football. So in terms of teams that are giving up the fewest sacks in college football there are 79 teams that have given up fewer sacks than Alabama including you know who's ranked ahead of them in the SEC standings Vanderbilt Vanderbilt has given up less sacks as an offensive line than Alabama okay so the offensive line just isn't good enough I don't know what Doug what's going on with Doug Marone but I'll tell you I, I have no inside information I want to be surprised if this guy's back ne- not, not back next year he's not earning his paycheck the second thing defense isn't good enough Go on social media during an Alabama game, Google Pete Gold or Twitter Pete Golding, 
uh, the defensive coordinator at Alabama. Alabama fans are over him. They actually, ironically, you know who they want to bring back is Jeremy Pruitt, former Tennessee head coach, because he was a great defensive coordinator there. But uh, Pete Golding is not getting the job done. This is a defense, especially against the pass that has struggled, 55th nationally against the pass, and Hendon Hooker the other night absolutely tore them up. A guy that was banged up coming out of that old Miss game, 19 of 28 passing, 282 yards, three touchdowns, a bunch of big plays, over 10 yards per completion. That's not going to get it done if you want to be a championship-caliber team. You might be able to wear down Tennessee. You're not going to be able to wear down Ohio State. You're not going to be able to wear down Oklahoma. You might not even be able to wear down Georgia, depending on how that game goes. Finally, what I would also say is this. This is something I just noticed for the first time on Saturday night against Tennessee. I think we all got spoiled by the playmakers that Alabama had over the last couple years. And it has been talked about at length. Four first-round wide receivers at Alabama. Devontae Smith, who won the Heisman Trophy last year. Jalen Waddell, who is now with the Miami Dolphins. Jerry Judy with the Denver Broncos. And Henry Ruggs, who is a superstar speedster with the Las Vegas Raiders. And when I watch Alabama this year, there just aren't those guys where last year, Devontae Smith, the year before Henry Ruggs, you just throw them a five, you know, a 10-yard slant pass, they catch the ball, they're gone, nobody's catching up with them. Well, this year, first sign that there might have been a problem, Alabama had to go get Jamison Williams out of the transfer portal. The guy I mentioned a minute ago was like the fifth or sixth wide receiver at Ohio State. Now, this kid might play himself into the NFL draft this year because he just has an opportunity at Alabama, but when you're best wide receiver was like the fifth or sixth guy at Ohio State. That tells you a little bit of something about the guys that you have in the program. John Mechie's good. He's not a difference maker. Uh, Slade Bolden, when he's healthy, is good. Not a difference maker. And so I see this Alabama team, and I'm telling you right now, I actually think Bryce Young has blown away what I was expecting of him. I tweeted it the other day. He reminds me of a young Russell Wilson in terms of his ability to kind of maneuver in the pocket, make plays, do all that stuff. But this Alabama team, I am telling you, I just I think they're really good. But they have some real holes. They have some real flaws with the O-line. They have some real flaws with the defense. I think Bryce Young covers up a lot of stuff. I don't think they have the elite playmakers at wide receiver that are difference makers. And I'm telling you, at some point, this is going to catch up with them. I don't know when. Credit to Alabama for beating Tennessee, but I'd be I'd be worried if I was an Alabama fan, and I think Alabama fans are worried. Some people, you know, when a guy like me comes out and says what I'm saying right now, a lot of people would criticize, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. I think there's a lot of Alabama fans that know this team has flaws, and those flaws need to be fixed if you want to compete for a national championship. Before we get, speaking of, before we even transition, let's, I do want to quickly talk about the other side of that game, which was obviously Tennessee, and I just want to say this, you know, I tweeted it out on Saturday night, and I truly do believe it. I think when you are talking about actual coaching jobs, not win-loss, not who's going to win this national coach of the year, conference coach of the year, all that stuff, when you are just talking about actual coaching jobs in college football, I believe you can make a genuine argument that Josh Heupel at Tennessee is doing as good of a coaching job as anybody in college football. Again, another one that sounds preposterous. They're 4-4. Four and four. They lost to the four best teams on their schedule. Their best win when you really look at it is probably Missouri, and Missouri stinks. They have one of the worst defenses in college football. But not every coaching job is strictly based on wins and losses, right? Because when you look at what Josh Heupel inherited, when you look at what he walked into at Tennessee, there is no reason that this team should be 4-4, four and four, let alone even competing with Alabama on the same field as the Crimson Tide Saturday night in Bryant-Denny Stadium on the road. For people who don't know, 
Josh Heupel walked into a dumpster fire left by Jeremy Pruitt. We all remember by now, Jeremy Pruitt, head coach, Tennessee, three years, it's not working. Then last offseason, my buddy Trey Wallace breaks the story. Trey Wallace, a very good friend of mine, he now works for OutKick. He was the guy that broke the story that Jeremy Pruitt and his staff were basically cheating their you-know-what off. And this isn't a, a time or a place to get into who was doing what. They were only doing it to compete with this school. They were the ones that got caught. They were the ones that got busted. And when Jeremy Pruitt got fired... I don't think people understand how big of a disaster it was at Tennessee. One, we have the long coaching search. That's because they had to hire the AD first. Phil Former leaves. He quote-unquote retires, but we really know he was forced out. You bring in Danny White from Central Florida. And I don't think at the time when he hired his own head coach, Josh Heupel, we all kind of scratched our head and said, Danny White, that, that, that's the move that you're making? You get your Power 5 opportunity at a prominent SEC school you pay for a search firm, and then you go out and hire your coach. What are you doing? But beyond that, not only was the hire question, but on top of that, Josh Heupel lost a ton coming into this season, okay? So I, I tweeted this out, and I don't even know if I have all of the, the guys correctly, but I can definitively tell you, here is who Tennessee lost this offseason. In the portal, once Jeremy Pruitt decided to leave, they lost their two best running backs, Eric Gray, who's now at Oklahoma, Ty Chandler, who's now at North Carolina. They lost their two starting offensive tackles. One also is at Oklahoma. One is at Texas A&M. They lost their two best linebackers. Ironically, Henry Toto, now at Alabama, the team that Tennessee faced on Saturday night. Also, Quavarius Couch, who is one of the difference-making players on Michigan State's defense, which is one of the top 10 teams in the country. They also lost a starting safety, Key Lawrence, who went to Oklahoma. So yes, Oklahoma has three starters right now that were at Tennessee this past year. But when you look at that, when you look at the fact that in total they lost 31 players to the transfer portal and they are down to 71 scholarship players. And that's pre-injury, that's pre-anything. There is nothing in college football that says this team should even be competitive right now, yet here they are sitting at 4-4, four and four, and if you go back and look at their games, they easily could have beat Ole Miss, they played Alabama tough, they could have beaten Pitt, who might be the team in the SEC, the best team in the SEC, they really only played one game where, uh, I don't want to say it wasn't even competitive, but it wasn't close late, and that was the Florida game in the swamp where they were down by uh, three, three scores going into the fourth quarter. And so what I want to do, I'm not going to belabor the point. I'm not going to over-exaggerate it. I do think we have to give a little bit of credit to Josh Heupel, though. This is a guy that came in. He wasn't a universally beloved hire, but he has gotten these guys to believe. He has gotten them to play hard. And I think they're completely overachieving right now with a roster that has no business being in the position that they were. I can honestly tell you, as I did my college football prep coming into this year, I said, I think this is the third worst roster in the SEC behind only Vanderbilt, only South Carolina, yet here they are, they're 2-3 and three in the SEC, 4-4 four and four overall, and they still have South Alabama and Vanderbilt to get to 6-6 six and six and go to a bowl game, and if they do that, I think that is a monumental first step under Josh Heupel, and I'll take it a step further. I think it is a great step and a great building block to maybe this is finally the guy. I know we've talked about every single time Tennessee brings in a new head coach. Is Derek Dooley the guy? Is Butch Jones the guy? Is Jeremy Pruitt the guy? And every single one has been in colossal flop. But one, no one, no one has gotten these guys to play this well this early as Josh Heupel. The other thing is, with this offense, an offense which is scoring a ton of points, 
an offense that right now is ranked fourth in the SEC, averaging almost 38 points per game, an offense that passes the ball like crazy, one of the best pass offenses in college football. Uh, you look at where Josh Heupel is, what his resume and his track record is, I think this guy's going to clean up in the transfer portal era. And it's really funny because that was the one thing I did say, and I will give myself a little bit of credit for, when he was hired. I said, I don't know if I really like the hire. Tennessee has lost a ton but the one thing that I can tell you about Josh Heupel is that with that offense and the numbers that they have put up, this is an offense they should be able to get players into this program pretty quickly for two reasons. One, well, two reasons because of the transfer portal. One, kids want to play in the SEC. And two, kids want to play, period. And I think it's easy for everybody to say, I want to be part of a championship team. I want to do this. I want to do that. No, kids want to play, and they want to play in a fun system that is going to feature them. And when you look at what Josh Heupel has done through his career, one of the most explosive offenses in college football during his time at Central Florida and having immediate success at Tennessee, I'm telling you, this is going to be a fun, dynamic program going forward. So look, not every time, you know, not every team, I remember doing this a lot with Sam Pittman at this time last year at Arkansas. We don't just have to talk about the teams that are going to be 11-1, 12-0 going to the playoff. We don't just have to talk about great coaches as the ones that go 12-0 every year and win their conference. Sometimes the best coaching jobs are in the hardest situations, and I think that you can legitimately argue that Josh Heupel, relative to what the expectations are, has done as well as anyone in college football. This was a team that, again, I cannot emphasize it enough, lost 31 players to the transfer portal from the time Jeremy Pruitt left to the time that Josh Heupel was hired. This is a guy that lost his two best running backs. This is a guy that lost his two starting offensive tackles. This is a guy that lost his uh, two best linebackers. He lost a starting safety. His starting quarterback did not get to campus until spring practice, until the spring. This is not a guy that had all offseason to work with his guy, or did not have years and years to work with his guys. He gets in in January, looks at his roster. There isn't a ton. Hits the portal, does this, does that. And as they sit here at 4-4 four and four, with games against South Alabama and Vanderbilt left, if this guy gets Tennessee to a bowl game, I think it is as among the best coaching jobs in college football. And I know Tennessee fans have battered vol syndrome or whatever they call it. They don't want to get too excited. But I would be genuinely optimistic because this team plays hard for this coach. They seem to like this coach, and they play an exciting brand of football. All right, really quick, let's wrap on a couple things. First of all, the Oklahoma-Kansas game. Talk about a bananas game. I don't really want to spend a ton of time on this. Oklahoma does survive, and a couple things. First of all, credit to Kansas. They had a brilliant game plan. It reminded me a lot, and I said it at the time. I said it during uh, the game. Is it reminded me a lot of the Gonzaga UCLA Final Four game, where Gen where Gonzaga wants to play this fast paced, up and down, up and down, up and down, and UCLA every chance they got would not fast break, would pull it out, would run 32 seconds off the shot or, or 28 seconds off the shot clock, take a shot as the, the shot clock was winding down. And, and with UCLA, more shots than not went in, and they were able to close out the victory. That was essentially what Kansas did. Kansas wanted to slow things down. They wanted to keep the ball out of Caleb Williams' hand. And to their credit, they did it about as well as they could. 412 yards of total offense, th 35 uh, uh, 35 minutes time of possession. They dominated time of possession. And if Caleb Williams wasn't a difference maker at quarterback, 
Um, you know, I don't know if Oklahoma wins that game. I, like, like, let me put it to you this way. If Spencer Rattler is still Oklahoma's quarterback, I do not think Oklahoma wins that game. Beyond that, what I would say, this Caleb Williams kid, if you're not watching him, he is really, really, really special. We're going to talk about Heisman in a minute. But what I will tell you is this, is if you start talking about the Heisman Trophy being a reflection of the most valuable player to each individual team, I think you can make a genuine argument that nobody is more valuable, nobody is more important to their team than Caleb Williams is. If he doesn't come in against Texas, they get run out of the building. If he isn't on the field yesterday against Kansas, they lose that game. And so when you start talking about value and importance of a player, I think Caleb Williams is right towards the top. The play that most of you have probably seen by now, one of the most incredible plays I have ever seen late in the game. They're driving. It is a crucial possession. They're trying to put away Kansas. What happens? Fourth down. They give the ball to running back Kennedy Brooks. He gets stopped behind the line of scrimmage. What happens? Caleb Williams runs up rips the ball out of his arms, runs forward for a first down. The only time I have ever seen that happen before, during uh, Miami's national championship run in 2001, Ed Reed made the same play. There's a tipped pass. Matt Walters, a defensive lineman, catches the ball. He's about to get tackled. Ed Reed rips the ball out of Matt Walters' hands. I've actually asked Ed Reed about this one time. I was talking, I interviewed Ed Reed for Big Story on that Miami team, and he told me an, incre- a, an incredible story where he ran behind Matt Walters and said, Matt, it's Reed. Matt, it's Reed. Matt, it's Reed. I kept telling him, Matt, it's Reed. And I bring it up because that was the only other time that I saw that. Ed Reed rips the ball out of a defensive lineman's hand, returns it for a touchdown. They win a game out to a national championship. Caleb Williams rips the ball out of his running back's hand, gets the first down, allows Oklahoma to move the clock, and they end up winning the game. There was some controversy. Some people felt like it was forward progress, that the play should not have counted, but it remained incredible nonetheless. What I would say on top of that, this kid, Caleb Williams, is the real deal. He is a kid that is a leader, that is incredibly talented, and I know it's not like a big shocker, but Oklahoma, I I, I now have more faith in them than I did three, four weeks ago with Spencer Rattler. This Caleb Williams kid is just different. I'm just telling you, I can't explain it. I can't verbalize it. He is incredible. He makes them a different team. I know they struggled to beat Kansas. I still think they have a loss on their resume. But he gets better every week. He gets more confident as the starting quarterback every week. And I'm just telling you, Oklahoma could be dangerous going forward. Last thing I want to say is this. There were kind of two things that that happened in college football, one of them more under the radar than the other. But I, I found them both very interesting for one reason. The first result, uh, this is the first time ever that your boy Torres has talked Wake Forest football on the Aaron Torres podcast. But they played Army, and they beat Army, and the final score was 70-56. to I saw a great tweet, by the way, something about the U.S. Army has a, a billion-dollar defense fund, and this is the best they could come up with. I thought, it was so, I thought it was so clever. I thought it was so funny. I wish I had thought of it myself. But Wake Forest wins this game. They move to 7-0. and now, they do still have a pretty bit, a pretty tough schedule left. At North Carolina, NC State, at Clemson, at Boston College, three of their final four are on the road. But this happened on the same day that Pitt hosted Clemson and absolutely curb-stomped him. And the one thing I'll tell you, I get a lot of things wrong on this show, but I told you Pitt was going to beat Clemson. I told you the point spread was off. It should have been more than three points. And I said, pay attention. This kid, Kenny Pickett's for real. If he has a big game... He will be talked about in the Heisman Trophy race. 
Well, go to Aaron Torres online. Guess who is the number four best Heisman Trophy odds in college football right now? It is Kenny Pickett. He was awesome. But I bring up these two games independently to ask you this. We spend so much time talking playoff. We spend so much time talking Oklahoma, Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, Alabama, Georgia, Cincinnati this year, Iowa. Can they come back? Oregon, are they still in the picture or not? Like, at what point do we acknowledge that these ACC teams have a legitimate shot? Now, do I believe either of them will finish? Do I I believe Wake Forest will finish undefeated? I don't. Do I believe that Pitt will finish with one loss? I don't. And so once that happens, that starts to change the narrative a little bit. Pitt, I would also say, lost to Western Michigan, which will go down as the worst loss of any real playoff contender. A lot different losing to Western Michigan at home than it is losing at Texas A&M if you're Alabama. But I just bring it up because at, like, we have to start talking about the ACC at some point, right? Like, like Just because Clemson is not in the picture, you have one team that's undefeated, 7-0. and You have one team that is 6-1 and and just destroyed Clemson. The final score won't tell you, but they dominated Clemson in that game. And I just sit there and say, I'm just curious because it feels like to me at some point we have to at least acknowledge. Now, if you want to start having the debate now of what is an undefeated Wake Forest or what is a one-loss Pitt versus an undefeated Cincinnati look like, maybe it's a little too early for that. Uh, A one-loss Ohio State versus an undefeated Wake Forest, maybe a little bit too early for that. But I am just saying, like we have had this college football playoff conversation and just completely ignored the ACC. Again, we talk about could we get two SEC teams with Alabama and Georgia? Could we get two Big Ten teams, depending on how it shakes out? Could we get uh, Oklahoma in as an undefeated team? What about Cincinnati? I am just telling you, the ACC, just pay attention because it is getting interesting there. They have two teams that I think we at least have to put in the conversation of the college football playoff. All right, I think that is it for this episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You know, for for a, a day where we didn't really have a ton going on, uh, it turned into a pretty good show. So I want to thank you guys for listening and uh, all the usual reminders coming out of this show. One, make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres podcast. If you aren't already, iTunes, the Podcast Addict app, Spotify, Apple Music, Google Music, whatever. Sorry, I couldn't even think there for half a second. All the great podcast platforms, make sure you're subscribed. Uh, also, make sure to rate and review the show. I should mention, uh, if you like kind of the betting aspects of college football, Find College Football Betting with Aaron Torres. That is my college football betting specific show, which I encourage you to listen to. Also, if you like my stuff, Pickin' Pigskin Winners, that's part of the Aaron Torres podcast media company. Uh, two really good NFL writers break down all of the NFL games. Pickin' Pigskin Winners podcast. And as always, all my writing is at AaronTorresOnline.com. AaronTorresOnline.com, so make sure you're checking things out there. We are going to ramp up in the coming weeks because we got college basketball coming. Should mention, Marcus Carr was on Friday's episode. If you're a College Hoops fan, you know who Marcus Carr is. Star of Texas basketball. Encourage you to check it out. But it is time for me to get out of here, but make sure you're subscribed. Make sure to rate and review. If you like this show, if you like college sports, college football, you want a little college basketball going into the season, we're two weeks away. Make sure you tell your friends about Aaron Torres. But I do think that's it for this episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. I want to thank you guys for listening. I want to thank you again, by the way, for your support. This month has been a record-setting month. We are on, on record to break the most downloads for one month. YouTube, we have already destroyed the, the record 
for most da- for most you know views, streams, hours watched, whatever. If I told you the numbers that we were putting up on YouTube, you'd just laugh. It's absurd. So thank you guys for your support. Thank you guys for listening, and thank you for uh, downloading this episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. I'm gonna get out of here because we got a busy week ahead. College basketball is coming. College football is full speed ahead. Ohio State, Penn State this week. Michigan, Michigan State this week. Florida, Georgia this week. Kentucky, Mississippi State, on and on. Auburn, Ole Miss. So I'm going to get out of here. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. Shout out to Kenny Pickett. I told you, he's a Heisman Trophy candidate. I will be back later this week on the Aaron Torres Podcast. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.